Learn about a new treatment for moderate to severe plaque psoriasis from expert voices in dermatology. Go to PeerspectivesInPsoriasis.com. That's P-E-E-R PeerspectivesInPsoriasis.com. You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. So I'm Dr. Jim Dalrasso in Las Vegas, Nevada, with another edition of Derms and Conditions Podcasts. And back by popular demand is someone who's a great guy, but extremely knowledgeable in the area that we're going to be talking about. And that's Dr. Andy Boivalt, who does a lot of clinical research and has practiced up in... How long have you been in Portland, Oregon now, Andy? 20 years now, Jim. Yeah. So 20, 20 years... Uh, you know, time flies. And what we're going to be talking about today is we're going to be talking about IL-17 inhibition and focusing on bimikizumab, which is under the brand name of Benzelk. So Andy, I'll just get right into it. This has been talked about as being different, you know, sets a higher bar in terms of efficacy, um, spoken about as having a, a favorable safety profile. Those are our submissions, which we'll get into. But the mechanism of action, being an inhibitor of both IL-17A and IL-17F, has relevance clinically. So can you explain that a little bit more to me? Yeah, Jim, uh, bim, bimikizumab, which we just we call BIMI for short, um, is, has been around for a while. So one of the uh, one of the unusual things about this that you didn't mention is that um, you know it, it was first um, submitted to the FDA years ago, and it's taken a while for it to get approved. So that's a little bit unusual, and that drug has been approved all around the world, um, pretty much for several years now. So just in this country, we've known about it, we've known the data. Um, it's it. There's been a number of kind of regulatory um, things that 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 the uh, the company UCB had to had to get over and, and and address with the FDA most of it related to manufacturing um, and not so much to to efficacy and safety but we finally have it so so we have a drug that we've known about for a while we have a lot of data it's been approved for years actually in other countries and now we have it um, in the US well, Andy, what makes it interesting is we have a lot of data to talk about when a drug is being launched here, and we have actually head-to-head comparative data that's in the label with the drug. So that's very different compared to most of the drugs. So, but can you focus on the mechanism of action for me? Sure. So we we know secukinumab and we know ixekizumab, and those are two IL-17A inhibitors. So there are different what we say isoforms of IL-17, um, and that and those are A, B, C, D, E, and F. So these are cytokines that are related to one another, um, A, B, C, D, E, and F, but each isoform is a little bit different. And in terms of psoriasis, we've known for years now that IL-17A is a very, very potent inflammatory cytokine found in psoriasis. And we know um, that it's important in psoriasis pathogenesis because we have inhibitors of IL-17A that do terrific. Now, when we look at the other isoforms, um, the next most important one, I think, in psoriasis pathogenesis is IL-17F. 
And F is actually uh, 50% homologous to IL-17A. So half of the protein is, is the same and half is different. And this drug, bimikizumab, targets a region that is shared by IL-17A and IL-17F. So it's not a bi-specific antibody. It actually um, binds to one region, but that region is shared between those two cytokines. The difference between A and F is that on a molecule-by-molecule level, A is much more potently inflammatory compared to F. So it's a strong, A is more of a stronger sort of inflammatory mediator. On the other hand, within psoriasis lesions, there's a lot more IL-17F present within the lesions compared to A. So you have, they're they're both pro-inflammatory. They're both inside of psoriasis lesions. You have one in a small amount, but it's super potent, and that's A. The other one you have in a abundance and it's not as potent. And so so that's how they're related. And um, what we're seeing, to alluding to your question, is when we block A and F, um, what the clinical data is suggesting is that we're seeing greater efficacy than blocking A alone. So I, I think about it this way, pound for pound, A is stronger, but F sends a lot more of the troops in <laughs> Uh, to give you the effect that it gives. is That's my simplistic mind. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, I think that's good. All right. So now let's translate this to, I mean, the dosing is, is relatively straightforward, correct? Could you go over the dosing? Yeah, we see um, with IL-17 blockers in the past, um, we they're dosed about every month. And, um, and every two weeks, sometimes at the beginning, right? And then, or every week, we have a little bit of variation. But basically, ixikizumab, secukinumab are dosed monthly. Now, with bimikizumab, it's it's a little bit different. What we see is that the what we call the induction dosing is once a month. It's not every two weeks or every week. So you start at week zero, you go week four, eight, 12. And then starting at week 16, it's even spread out more than that. And that's the first of its kind. We see it every eight-week dosing after the first four months. So that's the maintenance dosing is only one shot every two months. And that is different than what we've seen with other IL-17 blockers actually approaches, you know, the IL-23 blockers um, in, in its infrequent maintenance dosing. And that's based on having enough comparative data of how patients did on every four weeks versus every eight weeks once they did the first four months every four weeks. I believe it's 320 milligrams, you know, is the dose that that's given each time. But you don't have to give it every week for a while in the beginning. You don't have to give more while you're inducing other than every four weeks. And then after week 16, it's every eight weeks, correct? Unless it's a really big person like I used to be. Does that change it? <laughs> um, yeah, there is a, uh, I think it's 120 um, kilograms. If patients are 120 kilograms or greater, um, then you probably should stick with your monthly dosing and not go to every other month dosing. Yeah, that's about 260 something pounds or something. So you're talking about a pretty big person then. Yeah. yeah. And I think um, to get back to your, you know, the MOA connection, right, is we think we're seeing um, greater efficacy than just A alone. 
And we think we're seeing, you know, the ability to spread out dosing compared to A alone because we're blocking A and F. So I think I think blocking both important isoforms actually does come with some clinical relevance. So what about what I've seen, the data I've seen, and at times have spoken about and read about and hearing about now, is for many of the patients, you get very high efficacy quickly, and then that captures in more and more people, but it sustains over time, even if you go to every eight weeks, like we were just talking about. Can you go over some of the specifics with the efficacy, including getting people clear, which everybody wants to get to, right? Yeah, so IL-17 blockers um, are the fastest drugs that we have in in uh, psoriasis therapy. You know, compared to TNF blockers, compared to IL-23 blockers, um, they've been shown to be the fastest um, sort of class of biologics. And that's what we're seeing with BIMI as well. So we're seeing dramatic um, changes even after a single dose. So if we look at patients at, you know, week two, week four, um, which is just after a single dose, we're already seeing patients doing great. Um, and then um, the ideal, as you mentioned, the ideal sort of uh, goal these days in 2023 is passing 100, right? 100% clear. And with this drug, we are seeing um, in the short run, close to 60% of patients um, getting to PASI 100. And then over the course of a year, we're getting up to 70%. So seven out of 10 patients were 100% clear. And those, Jim, are the best PASI 100 numbers that we've seen to date with any psoriasis drug. So I'm pretty much saying um, in, in terms of efficacy, uh, this is the best drug we've ever seen in psoriasis. And when you say in the short run, you're talking by that week 16 point in the beginning, which is a typical, you know, early phase that's done in a lot of these studies. Uh, what about sustaining beyond? Because I know there's an opal label extension after the one year going out. I think they have data as long as three years and it sustains that PASI 100 in the same number of patients. Is that correct? Yeah. The, the uh, As we talked about at the very beginning, um, we're not used to having three-year data when we have a new drug approved by the FDA. And, and so the delay actually led to us having lots of long-term data with BIMI, including three-year efficacy. And we're seeing great maintenance of effect um, over the course of three years in the clinical trial program. Is this similar to what our colleagues that have had the drug in other parts of the world are seeing in their populations? It's something that's been noted globally, the types of numbers we're talking about? It's a good question, Jim. And it's um, another kind of a unique thing about this drug for, for U.S. dermatologists is that the drug has been prescribed, right, around the world for a number of years now. There's been over 10,000 patients treated in real-world settings. And we have, we're seeing um, the same things, of course, we saw in the, in the clinical trials uh, great efficacy, sustained efficacy. Um, we haven't talked about safety yet, but, you know, a, a really nice safety profile as well. So 
that's good news. And so when you're seeing a patient, before I ask you about safety, because there are some questions about that, obviously, some things to discuss. When you're seeing a patient and you're offering them different options, what are a couple of the key things? Because you don't have all data to go through everything okay. with them that you make sure you tell them about the efficacy when you're talking about bimikizumab. It's a great question, Jim. Like you, you ask the best questions. <laughs> uh, well, that hey, that's the best thing I've heard in a long time. <laughs> well, um, it it's difficult for dermatologists to juggle. I think I think what your question is is is, is how do we juggle all of these biologics, right? And and guess what, Bimmy is number twelve, Jim. <laughs> it's the twelfth biologic now that we have for psoriasis. And um, so I kind of try to simplify this conversation and say, look, we have three major types of, of, of biologics, TNFs, uh, IL-17 blockers, and IL-23 blockers. You know, we, we have used to Kinumab, it's a 12, 23, but I, I basically put that in 23. And the 17s are a little bit different, but they're basically 17 blockers. And these days, I, I tell dermatologists, look, 17 or 23 is what you should be, where you should be at. Um, both of those categories are uh, highly effective, highly safe drugs. Um, to me, uh, light years ahead of TNF blockers. So I just don't really use TNF blockers anymore. I don't recommend it. If the insurance says I have to do it, I, I fight it. I, I just try to do everything I can to get to a 17 or 23. Now, when you're talking about those two, um, you got one group that works faster, and that's the 17s. You also have better PSA or psoriatic arthritis data, which we haven't talked about yet, with the 17 blockers. It doesn't mean 23 blockers don't work for PSA, but the data look better overall with, with 17. So, you, you know, if you're trying to decide between those two, if you want something fast, if they have some PSA, 17 should be your drug of choice, 17 blocker. And, um, you know, and BIMI within that group is a terrific choice because of the high efficacy. And then if someone is doesn't have any PSA, is not really worried about speed, wants infrequent dosing, that's kind of where we would lean towards the 23 blocker. So, um, yeah, so this drug, man, you could use it in everybody. Or you could use it in people with, you know, all your PSA patients. You could use it. Um, it's, but it's, but it's not currently FDA approved for psoriatic arthritis vimicizumab. But yeah. anti IL seventeens, other ones are correct. Sure, I'm kind of talking about if it's a it's a plaque psoriasis patient with, all right, with okay. PSA. right, yeah. okay, right, um, okay. It could be, uh, you know, some people saying, oh, it's only going to be used, you know, in the tough patients or second, third, fourth line, and I. I never like to say that. Why not use the best drugs early on? I'm a big fan of uh, being, uh, I'm a big, I, I don't like step therapy. <laughs> I don't like like going through all these, you know, poor efficacy drugs, hey, whatever. This is where I want to get. Give me the best chance of getting there and something that I can accept the safety aspects of it. And there's no reason why I shouldn't use it. I, I, I agree with you. Right, I, I I never understood that thinking. Also, you know why you why you Mickey Mousing around? I call it when when you can when you get right to the point that you're trying to get to. Yeah, and our our friend uh, our old friend Craig Leonardi, 
um, would put up a slide and calls it the ladder of shame. The ladder of shame is stepping through topicals and then going to phototherapy and then going to methotrexate and then and, and on and on and years and years have passed and suffering occurs. And, and oh, by the way, at the end, we have this amazing drug. Um, it's It really is a ladder of shame if you think about it from the patient's point of view, right? Of having to go through something like that because of insurance issues. It is, especially when you have the kind of severity that we're talking about. You're talking moderate to severe disease and patients that you know need a systemic therapy. Um, so you're talking about that category of patients. If, if I remember, the the BSA was about 25 to within 20, between 25 and 30%. They had PASI scores of around 20 on the average. They've been on 30, 40% of them have been on different biologics, including all the classes that we're talking about. So the, these are patients that have significant psoriasis. And they did have patients that had plaque psoriasis, like you said, with psoriatic arthritis in the study. But psoriatic arthritis was not being evaluated per se. It was the plaque psoriasis. Visit PeerspectivesInPsoriasis.com to read about a treatment for moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. Created in partnership with dermatology experts for dermatology experts, this hub is your one-stop educational platform delivered by respected voices you trust. That's P-E-E-R-SpectivesInPsoriasis.com. Now, let's discuss safety. I thought it was interesting that this drug in the package insert, contraindications are none. It doesn't even have that statement, you know, significant or severe hypersensitivity reactions or systemic hypersensitivity reactions related to the active ingredient or the excipients in the injectable solution. It doesn't even have that. It says none. So to me, that's significant. But there are some issues that come up, questions about the warning. So can you talk about some of those? Let's start right out of the shoot, what we always hear about is candidiasis. Let's start there. Yeah. So whenever I talk about IL-17 blockers, I emphasize two important um, potential side effects. And bimikizumab is no different. So the first one, as you mentioned, is oral candidiasis. Um, very importantly, oral candidiasis in the vast majority of patients on an IL-17 blocker, including BIMI, is confined to the oral mucosa. It's usually not vaginal candidiasis. It's usually not esophageal candidiasis. So it's very rare for it to go elsewhere. And it's because of IL-17, and especially actually IL-17AF, is involved in control of candida in the oral mucosa. And so when we're inhibiting those isoforms, um, we're picking up more candidiasis, and we do see more with BIMI compared to A-alone blockers. And A-alone blockers, it's, I don't know, two, three, it's less than 5% of patients um, in that range, kind of the 2 to 3%. With BIMI, we're more in the 10, sometimes 15%. So those are higher numbers than we've seen before. But it, they, the disease has the same things that we've seen in the past. They, it's usually mild to moderate easily controlled, um, 
it's uh, I, I, I just, so it, when you've seen it, when you've seen it, yeah. what do you use? What do you typically use? I know, you know, the topical Nystatin, the Swish and Swallow or the yeah. Troches have been used, oral fluconazole. What do you do? I give 200 milligrams of fluconazole once a day for five days. And that's it. And that does the job most of the time. Um, a little bit of fluconazole. Um, and it usually does it. And, you know, we actually had fluconazole in our clinic during the trials, we would just give it to patients right there, right in the clinic. <laughs> so they wouldn't even have to go. Um, we, we provided it. Um, it's pretty straightforward. If you look at the data again in the trials, it's you see it more commonly with than the other, um, you know, uh, 17 blockers, but we didn't have anybody that stopped due to it. It didn't seem to interfere with things. You do have to sort of think about the classic uh, risk factors for candidiasis. So those, a reminder to your audience, it's, uh, it's dentures, uh, smoking, uh, diabetes, just poor dentition in general. And so if you have a bimikizumab patient who has dentures or maybe poor dentition or diabetic, those are the ones you might more likely see right? More likely chance of seeing candidiasis. And so check and ask about it. And most patients had it only once during the course of therapy, but occasionally there were recurrences and you just treat them the same way if the disease comes back, if the candida comes back. Yes. Correct. Yep. All right. So now let's go to some of the other considerations. So one of the things that comes up with psoriasis patients in general, I, I think about it with patients that battle, you know, any of these chronic diseases. There's a lot more talk over time and a lot more drill down, uh, especially since one of the anti-IL-17 agents got a actual program, that REMS program, related to suicides. What's the situation with suicidal ideation or behaviors with bimikishimab? Yeah, um, uh, it's a great question, but I want to just quickly touch on IBD. Because that's okay. That's the, that. so to me the two. I said there were two: Canada and right. IBD. So inflammatory right. bowel disease associated with psoriasis. So again, you know, baseline risk with IL seventeen blockers, including BIMI, There's an occasional IBD, and it's roughly you know one in one in three hundred, one in five hundred. Um, it may be the patients would have gotten IBD anyway and that sort of the 17 is unmasking it. It's just something I think your reader, you know, your listeners need to keep in the back of their head, ask about Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, ask about diarrhea. It, it, it can occur uh, with BIMI. Um, it's just something that they need to know, but it's not a reason not to use the drug. It's just a, something that to keep in the back of the mind. But it can it has occurred with, it's not only unique to bimikizumab, correct? Yep. It's occurred with other other agents, like you mentioned. I think the label says specifically, um, if they have active IBD, they recommend not using it, but not necessarily a family history or a past history as a contraindication, because once again, they don't list anything as a contraindication. Could we move on to, because um, we get occasional questions, even before bimikizumab, about suicidal ideation in psoriasis patients? So um, again, as a background, very similar to IBD, Jim, right, is that the suicide, suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety, these are at it, psoriasis patients are at an increased risk for all of those things. And so this is, 
this is con- these are considered comorbidities of psoriasis, as far as just mental health issues in general. So we do see higher rates of all those things. So you have that background rate. And then, as you mentioned, brodalumab is the drug that has the suicidal warning and the special program, whereas ixekizumab and secukinumab don't have the same kind of warnings. So when BIMI was being studied, the FDA in particular asked UCB to really focus on suicidal ideation in terms of their evaluation and, and so forth, uh, because it's in that IL-17 class, right? Because of brodalumab. And so that was done. In fact, this program had the most ever sort of focus on suicidal ideation compared to any other psoriasis drug. There was lots of different um, questionnaires, um, different, different ways of asking it, and it was done through the whole program. And so UCB has this tremendous amount of data now about um, uh, from bimikizumab, from this trial program on suicidal ideation. Um, the FDA looked at the package and um, one of the things that, so there was actually one suicide that occurred during the trial. Um, that's unfortunate. We never like to see that, but it's also kind of consistent with some other past data. There was some other data on um, a question that patients were, answer, were asked about um, suicide and a, a little, a, a, some positive responses to a questionnaire question at, at, uh, at, in the first few months of the study. And so they, they put, they, they looked at that with closer eyes. And so they looked at this whole package and they decided to um, not put a box warning, but to um, put some wording about suicidal ideation because of the single suicide, because of the uh, responses to one of the questions um, but in general, you know, you're looking at the whole package, um, it was not enough, for example, to go to, you know, a boxed warning. Um, I think it's a, it's a cautious approach that the FDA has taken, um, but your listeners need to know about that. But I, I also think it's important that, you know, based on data from some of the comparative trials and other trials, that there were suicidal ideations and even some suicides with some of the other drugs. That's true. That so, happened over different points in time. That's really true. So UCB is not just Bradaliumab. Yeah, not just Bradaliumab. So I um, described to you, you know, the FDA sort of take on it, and 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 then they put some language that we have to abide by. But UCB has also put together um, a full this full report of suicidal data that should be. Um, so it was presented at the the fall clinical meeting. Um, it's in the public domain. So if your listeners want to see sort of the full data set um, that the FDA looked at, um, and it, su- it should be published soon as well, that's an important paper to sort of study so that your listeners can also kind of, um, you know, put their own take, let's say, or put their own stamp on the, the review of that data. So that's important for, for people to look at. Yeah, Some of the, the, some of the uh, suicidal attempts, I think, there were a couple not necessarily completed suicides were patients that had previous psychiatric disease and some had previous suicide attempts before they even went on drug okay. therapy. So I, you know, that they get a sense of caution if they hear about only one case, but the label does say that there's been no causal cause and effect relationship. It's just, it's just a warning. It's not a black box warning, like you said. Now, what about the liver enzyme? Well, I did. I wanted to comment too. Um, you mentioned it quickly. Um, 
But I just want to emphasize in that full report that UCB is writing and that will be published, they, they very importantly described the other biologics, all the other biologics in the, in the um, suicidal ideation data. And you are right, Jim, uh, bimikizumab does not stick out when we look at it compared to other biologics in their programs. So um, anyway, it's an it's a area of interest, area of controversy. Um, we have the language and the, and the label, but it's not the whole story is what we're saying. Right. Yeah. You know, I always feel like when I'm talking about this, I don't want to seem like I'm being defensive or trying to take sides. I think it's an area that we have to pay attention to with these patients, regardless of the drugs that they're using, and that it doesn't really stand out that bimikizumab, because they have the language that they put in now, they used much more stringent evaluations for suicide than have done in the past. Just keep it all in perspective. Right. This and very similar that, I thing happened, I think, with the liver, um, um, the liver enzyme data. So, of course, we always monitor liver enzymes in clinical trials with psoriasis patients. And it is not unusual, Jim, <laughs> it is not unusual to see liver enzyme elevations in psoriasis patients, um, regardless of whether they're on drug or not, right? So, we see fatty liver. We see fatty liver with psoriatics. We see alcohol-induced um, enzyme elevations in psoriasis patients. And so um, it's just another area that, you know, as a clinical trialist, um, I'm just so used to seeing enzyme elevations kind of all the time. And what we're looking for really is drug-induced um, elevations above baseline, right? And so that's kind of what we need to focus on. And so that was done in the trial, um, like it always does. And the FDA took a stance to saying, well, you know, look, there's a few elevations here and there. So they decided, again, being being kind of conservative, I, I would say, um, to put some language about liver enzymes in the label. And so it's recommended that enzyme liver enzymes are checked at baseline. And then the language is, and periodically, depending on sort of your clinical practice or clinical suspicion, or so there's no recommendation for set uh, time points that you have to do LFTs, but this is different than other 17 blockers. Um, the label says get some enzyme elevations at baseline, not elevation, get some enzyme. Yeah, they recommend transaminases, alkaline phosphatase, and bilirubin, and sometimes yeah. information there, if you're really trying to see if something's drug-induced, can actually be helpful. But the numbers were very low, and they were not much higher than the placebo group. And like you say, they do occur. There are evaluations, actually, in comparisons with some of the other agents, and they do occur uh, with the others also. So I, I think it's just a matter of just... Being this has not been any different with any of the other drugs that we've had. We had the antifungals for years. Periodically, look at the liver. Well, you know, okay, we'll, we'll we'll do that. Are there any other thoughts you have before we wrap up on uh, what I need to know about using this drug? Yeah. So this slightly different MOA MOA is important in terms of seeing greater efficacy than we've seen ever seen before. Um, in particular, it's likely, in my view, to get indication for PSA in the future based on the data, although who knows for sure. Um, it's being evaluated for HS. We haven't mentioned that. 
um, that may get yeah, We're doing those studies in the future. Yeah, we have that yeah. in our center. So two other things that you may see BIMI for in the future. It's it, you, like I said, you never know what the FDA will do, but those those are two other diseases where it's looked at closely. We have data. Um, so great efficacy, a little bit more Canada. And um, some of the language in the, you know, some of the language is different in this terms of safety as we talked about, but I personally am not too worried about that. I kind of just, I, um, my view well, well, of this drug. To me, is, it's not, not unexpected. You're talking about five years, seven years, eight years since the previous drugs were approved uh, that are anti-IL-17. So different things come up at different points in time. But the fact that it says no contraindications tells me that there's a lot of leeway with dealing with issues with individual patients, depending on their personal circumstance. So I, I feel like you. Uh, to me, it was not alarming and no different than what I normally handle anyway in clinical practice. Yeah. So in summary, I'd say it's a great new option for us. It's a or for patients, really, right? So I mean, seven out of ten, PASI one hundred. Uh, I mean, this that should ride the day with this drug. I mean, being the best PASI 100 drug should mean something. Uh, I, you know, to me, that that's really, really mo the most important thing about this drug. Well, the main reason why we're having this conversation is because there is a big difference in the efficacy as compared to other ones, as was shown in actual comparative trials with alimumab, secukinumab, and ustekinumab. That's in the label with bimikizumab. So. Uh, people can actually see all of that data. Uh, one final comment that I noticed when I was reading the package insert, they did evaluations on the scalp and it worked extremely well on the scalp versus the placebo. Yeah, I think to me, I, th I think of scalp, nails, genitals as just, uh, if, if it works elsewhere on the body, it's going to work well in there. The, the only area where it doesn't always correlate is the palms and soles. Right. Palm and soul psoriasis may be a little different beast, but, you know, if, if a drug works great on the total body, it's going to work great on the scalp. That's true. But a lot of people ask about it independently because they think of scalp psoriasis is different. But I'm glad I'm hey, I'm doing pretty good today. I'm falling in line with Andy Blauvelt. <laughs> I, I feel good today. So, Andy, thanks a lot. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm sure we'll be talking to you again and have a great day and keep doing the great job you do. I really appreciate it. I know everybody else does. Thank you very much, Jim, for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions, please email us at podcast at dermsquared.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at D-E-R-M-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D.com. Podcast at dermsquared.com. With so much to learn in the field of dermatology about treating moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, we've developed an on-demand resource hub that offers providers like you a collection of relevant educational video content, all delivered by your respected peers. Visit peerspectivesinpsoriasis.com now. That's P-E-E-R-spectivesinpsoriasis.com.